0: Hello and welcome back to the Legal Frontiers podcast for the final episode of 2021. My name is Stephen Minas. In this episode, we're bringing to you the launch of Associate Professor Joy Siang's book, Climate Change, Sustainable Development and Clean Tech, A Pathway for Developing Countries. The book launch took place earlier this month, hosted by the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And we're very grateful to Berkeley for making this recording available for our podcast. The book's author, Joy Xiang, is associate professor at the School of Transnational Law of Peking University and an expert in intellectual property law who is applying this expertise to the question of clean technology and climate technology. And as we discuss, the book's findings are incredibly timely in view of the work which is currently underway under the Paris Agreement, but not only under the Paris Agreement, to strengthen climate action and, of course, the critical role that technology plays as an enabler of more ambitious climate outcomes. The participants in the webinar are Rob Mergers, who is the Wilson Sonsoni Goodrich and Rosati Professor of Law at UC Berkeley and co-founder of the Berkeley Centre for Law and Technology, Associate Professor Joyce Yang, Richard Wilder, who is the former WIPO Director on Global Issues, and Microsoft IP and Policies Lead, currently serving as General Counsel of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and me. So here is the book launch, and I wish everybody a safe and a happy holiday season and we will be returning with more episodes in 2022
1: we're very pleased to have professor shang with us from uh, the pku campus in shenzhen where she teaches intellectual property including a uh, patent law this book we thought um when it came to our attention was uh, uh, very important at a crucial intersection and we all know uh, just from the events the last few years that uh, climate change has crept up on us and uh, is is very real and very much uh, in process. And so environmental remediation uh, and interventions and uh, solutions and coping mechanisms are on everybody's mind. And Joy is just the person uh, to come to us to talk about how uh, we can best disseminate and develop these technologies Um, in as many countries as possible. The uh, focus for her research and scholarship is intellectual property, but you'll see if you pick up the book that uh, she has situated the intellectual property issues in a much bigger context. And that I think uh, uh, I and the other commentators believe is the right approach because mostly this is a story about intellectual property as the cart that follows the horse. And the horse, the driver of uh, uh, clean tech capacity, uh, is going to be research and development infrastructure. It's going to be technical education. It's going to be investments in local and domestic uh, expertise and capabilities. Uh, because we know from history, and Joy will talk about this, that that simply the the bare transfer of patent rights uh, is is uh, almost irrelevant to the real story of. Economic development and and to technology development, and so what we have here is a book that takes a grown up view, an adult view of what it will really take to get developing countries up to speed in developing uh, clean tech. <clears throat> I want to just briefly thank BCLT for organizing our uh, discussion today. I want to thank Joy and our commentators uh, for being here, and I think I've probably said enough. Of an introduction, Joy. Do you want to take it? Take it from here.
2: Sure, I'll be happy to, Rob, and thank you. Uh, thanks to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology for this opportunity to uh, discuss this book with you uh, today. Join the discussion. Um, uh, my former uh, colleague and mentor, uh, Richard Wilder. He is the, um, currently the general counsel for CEPi. I'll just let Dick uh, make a quick introduction of himself before I move on.
3: Sure, of course, Joy. It's a great pleasure to to be here. It's a great pleasure to be able to participate in this um, this book talk, uh, the introduction of your book, and and a detailed discussion of these points. So I'm. As as Joy indicated, I'm general counsel at CEPI, which is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and also the head of legal and head of uh, business affairs uh, for SEPI. And you know, prior to SEPI, I was at the Gates Foundation, and prior to that, I was at Microsoft, where Joy and I met. And when I was at uh, Microsoft, one of the areas of responsibility I had, or the responsibility I had, was for intellectual property policy, and in that connection, um, was uh, helping uh, uh, Microsoft engage as they wanted to in discussions around climate change, including participating in uh, the Conference of the Parties in uh, Copenhagen uh, as part of a coalition called the Alliance for Clean Technology Innovation. So have some background in this area, but over the last uh, 15 years or so, I've been focused more on, on global public health. Thanks.
2: Great. Thank you, Richard. Um, and as later you will know, Richard uh, played a big role in, uh, the, uh, in this book. Uh, next, uh, we, will, we have uh, Dr. Stephen Minas join us. Uh, Stephen is a colleague, of, a colleague of mine at uh, Peking University School of Transnational Law. Uh, Stephen, will you please briefly introduce yourself to us?
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Joy, for the invitation to be here today. So indeed, I'm uh, a colleague uh, with Joy at the School of Transnational Law in Shenzhen. I'm also currently the chair of the Technology Executive Committee of the UN Climate Convention and the Paris Agreement. Uh, This body provides advice, uh, recommendations to the parties, to those two treaties on strengthening technology cooperation in the context of climate change. And I'm also a negotiator in the UN climate uh, negotiations, most recently at COP26, working amongst other things on technology. Uh, So that's my perspective and very much looking forward to the discussion today.
2: Thank you, Stephen. So now a brief introduction of myself, uh, just to present the reason I'm here is because my own interest in the issue. I was trained as a software engineer, Became a patent attorney. In the process, uh, I became interested in public policy issues, thanks thank to Dick Wilder's mentorship in the process. And because of that interest in public policy issues, I uh, got connected with uh, academic uh, teaching and research. Um, this project I'm discussing with you indeed is my first serious academic project. I have been um, working on this book uh, for five years and uh, um, what I present you today is uh, my current research result. So next I'm going to give you a brief uh, summary overview on what this book is about. Um, And my intention as I discussed with uh, Robert, uh, Richard and Stephen is that I intend today's Uh, session to be a discussion because we have such a stellar group of speakers here. And uh, I notice uh, many members in the audience are also senior members uh, that work in the area of the discussion. So I intend to make uh, this book talk a discussion rather than a one-way communication. All right. So for my brief overview, I'm going to contribute uh, in three areas, uh, why the book is here, how it comes to be here, uh, its major contributions, and what are the major points that the book uh, is discussing. Well, the book is here. Why it's here? Because of these people. As I, as I mentioned, Richard Wider, uh was a mentor to me uh, in IT and policy studies. So one day uh, after Dick uh, came from one of the UN triple C uh, conferences, uh, one of the COP conferences similar to the COP26 that just occurred, he discussed with me about uh, the general puzzlement uh, over some developing countries' uh, insistence that IP uh, was a major barrier to international transfer of clean technologies. So there's the puzzlement on why some different countries had such a view. Um, so at that moment, uh, I became rather curious, uh, want to dig into that question, resolve that puzzlement. So that's how this book started. And uh, as soon as I made uh, a, my first public talk uh, on the research, uh, Stephen uh, from the publisher Edward Edgar approached me, initiated a book project. All right, so everything started from there. Um, over the course of the past five years, uh, many people helped me to develop the book. The people I listed on this page um, are some of the main ones. Okay, um, Peter Yu, uh, Abby Brown, uh, Francis Snyder, Stephen Minus they all contribute significantly to my uh, development and the revision of the book. Josh Sonoff has always been there to encourage me to give me some great ideas. Uh, Rob Merges, uh, uh, George Contreras, Ed Lee, um, always was there to uh, read my drafts, etc. So this book is here because of the, the contributions, generosities of many. Of course, there's my own hard work as well. So there are two major contributions um, I consider my book is making. Of course, I, I probably know the literature in this area pretty well now. I know probably all the books, all the, um, major writings in the topic areas. I consider this book is one of the first one, if not the first one, that look at the the role of intellectual property rights in clean tech transfer, especially international clean tech transfer. More importantly, this book probably is the first one to explore how to realistically and systematically Uh, Build up developing countries so that they can have effective solutions for the climate change crisis they are experiencing. Uh, Many developing countries, uh, especially the small island developing states, the least developed countries, they are most vulnerable to the negative effects of climate change. So, helping them, supporting them to build up the capacity to survive stand on their feet, and even to develop in the climate crisis um, is very important. And also, there is about sustainable development. How do we prepare, especially the developing countries to have a real realistic march toward sustainable development? Therefore, whatever fruits we get from overcoming the climate crisis can last instead being washed away by the negative impact of economic development on environment. So this is one major contribution I I view this book is making. And the strength of the book is that, um, I think the top strength of the book is that, as you know, I was trained as a software engineer. So I like to look at evidence, look at data. Um, before I make a statement, so this book relies heavily on data, uh, surveys, and uh, um, statistics on different areas. For example, on um, the roles of IT plays in existing or uh, historical clean tech transfer transactions, and uh, the data available for historic his ex- existing. Uh, international clean tech cooperation, cooperation in IND, cooperation in uh, commercialization, what really will contribute a robust clean tech, domestic clean tech development. So I searched up and down, left and right for all the data available because this project is about global and international scope. So me individually, personally, uh, I don't have the resources and capacity to, to conduct the, the data survey myself. So I leveraged on uh, existing data, okay? Um, so the conclusions, the analysis I made heavily rely on uh, data's evidence available. Uh, in my training as a, uh, a public policy uh, researcher, um, The major principle is that any recommendation, proposals we make need to be evidence-based. So, Richard, anything I learned from the public policy program you me to join years ago, um, this is the major principle I took away, is that uh, the policy recommendation has to be evidence-based. So this book is a reflection of that. So next i'll give a quick overview of the findings and uh, the proposals on the book um, is making two major findings before I start doing the research okay everything I heard about clean tech at the global level uh, is about clean tech transfer from developed countries to developing countries to developing countries. Okay, that was a major thing that I heard again and again. Through this research, uh, I realized that we actually need both clean tech innovation development and clean tech transfer uh, at the global level, international level, level, and at the domestic level. Uh, The reason being that uh, in view of the reality of uh, our need for climate action and for sustainable development technical wise um, we still need major technology breakthroughs in some clean tech sectors in order to reach for that uh, we need to encourage clean tech development at the global scale uh, especially as the developed countries need to take the leadership to drive in advanced Clean tech development and help us to reach the breakthrough, technical breakthrough we need. And also for international clean tech transfer, because of discrepancy of clean tech ownership, we do need to encourage uh, transfer of technology, clean tech from developed. Countries from major clean tech owners to, to the countries who need it. So that's my first uh, conclusion. And for that conclusion, I observed that intellectual property protection is necessary, at least for attracting uh, the clean tech that developing countries need. As the research shows, my research shows that Currently, most developing countries indeed have access to uh, most clean tech. The reason being that data shows that most developing countries, they have very few clean tech IT in their jurisdictions. So theoretically, that means these countries, they can access the technology for free. The issue is that, how do you access the necessary intelligence behind such technology? Without IP protection, IP owners, they will continue to be afraid to share such information with the technology seekers. So IP protection is necessary for attracting knowledge and access to needed technologies. In order to achieve clean tech breakthroughs, some of the breakthroughs need R&D investment that may produce uh, uncertain results, okay? Some of the results may not be immediately commercially uh, profitable. So because of such uncertainties, uh, IP protection uh, needs to be one of the incentives available Uh, for encouraging global investment uh, in advanced clean tech uh, that may produce the uh, technology breakthroughs that we need uh, to have. So my second discovery uh, under this topic is that uh, data shows again and again that the private sector, the commercial sector uh, does play uh, a significant role in clean tech development and transfer. Uh, a majority of the clean tech investment still uh, comes from the private sector, especially in developing uh, developed countries. In developing countries, the situation uh, has been that the government, the public sector uh, provided uh, the majority of IND investment in clean tech, but this trend uh, has been changing, especially in the emerging economies, Private sectors are increasingly constantly overpassing the ID investment from the government public sectors. Okay. So the private sector's interests, uh, their motivations in the transactions uh, need to be addressed instead of being uh, ignored. Uh, so the second uh, major finding is that international clean tech transfer since the 1970s has been emphasized, but has produced very limited results. One survey that I rely on heavily, but uh, it's finding being repeated by many other surveys is that um, about 75% of uh, international clean tech transfer occurs among developed countries themselves. Of the remaining 25%, about 23% is clean tech transfer from developed countries to developing countries uh, that are leading the development. So that means the emerging emerging economies, China, uh, India, Mexico, uh, et cetera. Usually, uh, typically there are 16 countries being listed as emerging economies. So that means most of the international clean tech transfer goes to these 16 emerging economies. So the remaining 100 plus developing countries, they're getting little of the international clean tech transfer. And they are these cheap, uh, these countries that actually uh, probably need, you know, mostly need uh, access to clean tech for addressing uh, climate change or uh, mitigating adapting to climate change. However, of these 100 plus low income, mid income countries, I conclude that clean tech IPR has not been a major barrier for their access. The reason being that, as I mentioned um, briefly earlier on, of the existing clean tech patents, low-income countries, mid-income countries, they probably are taking only taking up only about one percent of the existing major key clean tech patents. So that means theoretically. In these jurisdictions, these countries can access these key clean tech technologies uh, for free because they are not patented in their countries. But the issue still is, how do you access to the know-how behind the technologies? Okay, How do you get the training, the capacity for adapting, implementing these technologies in the local jurisdiction? So they still need help to do that, and uh, uh, in order for developing countries to attract, adapt, absorb, and implement foreign clean tech, literatures, ongoing researches, and my own research indicate that uh, capacities in the receiving jurisdictions is. One of the major bottlenecks, uh, capacity building, include uh, local institution, local ID D uh, engineering capacities, and uh, uh, local labor qualities, and some of the soft infrastructure such as market, business, uh, soft uh, conditions, and even political government conditions uh, in the local jurisdiction. Another major bottleneck. However, is that the global community, especially developed countries who have promised, committed to provide aid to developing countries, such promise commitment have not been uh, consistently, if not at all fulfilled over the years. Okay, the situation is, Improving, for example, um, in the summer, in June, uh, the G7 meeting, um, the World uh, World Bank promised to increase uh, climate financing to developing countries. Uh, other organizations uh, are also making, uh, making promises. Um, but the gap between the aid that has been provided versus the so aid that actually is needed by developing countries is still huge. So Stephen Minas may you know, later tell us what happened at COP27 um, in terms of corporate uh, climate, climate change financing, et cetera. Then Dick Wider may uh you know at least uh, refer to uh, how he views capacity building in developing countries, um, especially in view with his current uh, engagement with the public health uh, sector. So with these major findings, um, I, I try to make some suggestions um, to propose a solution because you know I came from the industry as an engin- engineer. Always uh, my teaching, uh, my learning is that unless you provide a solution, do not talk about the problems. Otherwise you are just creating the problem so that has been my philosophy principle. Uh, So concerning the proposed solution, there are really major two major things. First, uh, I still advocate that we should continue the effort on international clean tech transfer because of the huge gap in terms of technology ownership between developed countries and developing countries international clean tech transfer needs to happen, okay, and it needs to happen with greater volume, great greater substance. Uh, In order to do that, capacity building in developing countries is a key, okay, is a key issue. Uh, And effective, consistent international support also should go in parallel, all right? They cannot, uh, developing countries should not uh, struggle on their own because this, is a historical problem generated by uh, developed countries as well. And then, you know, how do you ensure effective, consistent international aid uh, through financial technical assistance and through mutually beneficial international cooperation? So in my book, I do strong, you know, to heavily emphasize uh, mutually beneficial international cooperation. Um, because I think international aid um, should be enjoyed by the least developed countries, the most vulnerable, for example, the small island developing states, for countries that do have resources capacity to construct a mutually beneficial international cooperation, uh, they should do because such a relationship can last. you know the parties, when their mutual interests uh, are being addressed, then maybe they are more uh, beneficial exchange. When you have a mutually beneficial relationship, maybe the technology owner is more willing to train the local workers. Maybe the technology owner is more willing to share the trade secrets, the business technical intelligence, the know-hows. So I emphasize this approach heavily uh, in my book, I also discussed the different ways of managing IT issues uh, in such mutually beneficial uh, international clean clean tech corporations um, so that IT issues are being addressed head on instead of being avoided. The second major thing of the book is that I do emphasize um, clean tech innovation needs to occur globally and locally, uh, one thing about clean tech is that um, I'm not a clean tech specialist. Okay, my technical specialty is in IT, information technology, software development. Um, but clean tech specialists have said that one uniqueness about clean tech, as compared to pharmaceutical technologies, to information technologies, is that um, clean technologies needs to be low care locate appropriate, All right? So that means the technology needs to adapt to the local ecological conditions. It needs to leverage local environmental resources. In order for clean tech to be locate appropriate, I think it's convenient to say that, how about we just encourage clean tech innovation locally? Of course, foreign clean tech may still be needed but they still need to come into the locale to be adapted to the local ecological climate conditions, okay, resources, uh, limitations. So because of these reasons, um, I'm suggesting that we have global clean tech innovation, leadership be driven by developed countries in the advanced clean tech research in order for us to achieve clean tech Breakthroughs that will benefit the whole global community. However, we, we should also emphasize domestic clean tech innovation so that the clean tech generated can be readily fit the local local appropriate needs requirement. So for, for the develop, you know, for developed countries, I will leave them to be because they are like the mature kids. So we don't need to hand holding them, all right? Um, they probably just need to optimize their innovation system. So to encourage the breakthroughs we all desperately need in order for clean tech to be comparable with the the non-clean tech, okay? the traditional uh, fuels technology in order to make uh, the breakthrough, clean tech breakthroughs we need technically for mitigating, adapting to climate change. Uh, so my emphasis still on developing countries for to achieve domestic clean tech innovation, developing countries has a long, you know, most of developing countries have a long way to go. Uh, we don't know when, you know, for the least developed countries, we don't even know, you know whether they will reach there or when they will reach there. In order for everybody to have a sustainable hope And even for the LDCs to have a direction to march, I do think striving toward domestic clean tech uh, innovation uh, is still probably a goal need to be set even for the least developed countries. uh, So they can set up their capacities for this long-term futuristic goal. So um, for such countries, uh, I propose an obvious pathway. Okay, so obvious pathway is that at least developed countries can initially heavily rely on international aid. The global community, you know, will help them to survive the climate change, the climate crisis, and uh, hopefully um, will enable them to stand on their own feet, leverage their own local resources, local conditions, their comparative advantages, then build up capacities that, for example, from merely producing traditional cultural products, low-end commodities, to be able to leverage their local strengths, resources, to generate some specialized high-end manufacturing goods, then gradually uh, find their own niche, domestic clean tech innovation and contribute to the global community with their uh, specialties okay i'm not asking the ldc's to grow up suddenly like like the emerging economies not to say the developed countries okay but designing a path and uh, helping them to set stand stand on their own feet and uh, um, hopefully one day they will create their own specialty uh, clean tech contribute to the overall sustainable development uh, of the global community. Okay, so that's just a high level description of what the book is about. The rest of the session uh, should be uh, uh, an in-depth exchange among the speakers and with the audience. I look forward to the continued discussion. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thanks, uh, Joy. I think, uh, Richard, I think you are you are up next for your extended comments, right?
3: I am indeed. Thank you. You know, I think the, the book is really excellent. It does show, um, you know, that you've put five years of effort, you know, into developing the material that goes into the book, uh, that there's a lot behind the observations that you make and the conclusions that you draw. Um, I think it does um, a, a very good job, even for someone who's, you know, relatively new to the discussion around clean technology and access to clean technology and its transfer. You know, I think it's a good introduction for people that are new to the topic because it does provide an overview of that topic specifically, but then also uh, goes into the history of, of agreements that pertain to uh, clean technology. The UNFCCC, of course, um, for the most part uh, is, is under focus. But then also it goes into a lot of uh, really good discussion about um, you know the the various forms of intellectual property and the role that they play in technology transfer. Um, I also like the fact that as you go through, you know the various um, parts, the three parts of your book, that you not only you know discuss you know the history and, and where things currently stand, but provide a number of national examples of how the the points that you're making have been, you know either carried out well or, or not carried out well. Uh, just to give um, the reader. An opportunity to learn more about um, what works and what doesn't work. Um, you know, I think I think that you know this this arena, and I'm reminded again now of this, having read your book and, and this discussion, just how very complicated it is. Um, and as I said, I've been working you know the last um, 10 or 15 years in global health, which is a complicated arena as well uh, to work in. But clean tech is is equally complicated, complicated, and and not just the technology itself. Um, uh, but the problem to be addressed, it too is a global one, you know, having to do with uh, protecting the planet. This is global health is a global one having to do with protecting uh, the human inhabitants of the planet against possible eradication uh, due to infectious disease. Um, so the problems, you know, are, are equally uh, challenging and, and cause um, really uh, their own existential threats to the, to the planet or at least to, to human life. Um, but they also have um, some similarities in the sense that, again, the technologies are complicated, but the politics, you know, behind how these issues have unfolded and been developed um, are complicated and have some of similarities that I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but then also, um, you know, there's, again, uh, common elements in the solution uh, that you're proposing, you know, which I can actually draw some connections between what you're proposing in this context involving uh climate change with some of the solutions that are being discussed for longer term you know solutions to addressing um, pa- uh, epidemics and pandemics. And um, I think as well that you did in in your book and also in your talk, you recognize that you know there are some important differences that need to be considered in in uh, in, in developing a you know a, a solution or a reaction to um, you know the lack of adequate technology transfer to address both mitigation and, and adaptation. One of them is just that, you know, that I think that there's different considerations in terms of the technologies that are being developed for, for adaptation and for mitigation. And uh, Joy, you and maybe Stephen can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it just seems to me that uh, you know, the mitigation technologies apply more to you know, the very uh, high emitters of, of, um, of carbon emissions more so than they would for countries with relatively smaller economies. Although you know, it is an issue that will progressively um, affect the smaller economies if they, they don't um, take advantage of some of the technologies to mitigate um, the effects of climate change. But I think adaptation technologies for um, the low middle-income countries and especially you know, the, the island nations um, is extremely important. Um, there's also differences in terms of the level of development, and I think you did a very good job in going through um, the literature and how different international uh, intergovernmental institutions uh, categorize countries at different levels of development and for what reasons or for what purpose. Um, and I think it's helpful to do that because there is indeed a difference, you know, that countries that have um, a base of knowledge and technology that can be built upon um, for research and development activities, just generally, you know, is one that ha- is in a much better position to be able to um, start taking up the challenge, you know, to, to developing new technologies, but can also do a much better job of rapidly um, adapting existing technologies for for the local needs. The the other the other aspect of it is um, the funding, um, you know, for this. I mean, you mentioned you, you you did a good job, I think, of of summarizing the, um, you know, the at the Copenhagen event, Copenhagen COP that I attended, you know, the promise of 100 billion dollars from uh, high-income countries to low- and middle-income countries, which did not materialize. And there have been promises like that, you know, over the years. There were promises, as you point out, in Article 66 of the TRIPS agreement uh, to promote the transfer of technology from developed countries to developing countries. And that hasn't, you know, materialized in a way that, that many, many would like. So getting to, to some of the basics, both of the problem that you identified and the solution, you know, I think that indeed, um, you know, intellectual property plays a role. It plays a role in the politics of, of the discussions that have gone on, you know, for quite some time. Um, you know, I remember back in, I was actually, I participated in the run-up to um, the Rio Summit in 1992, especially at that time on the Convention on Biological Diversity, because I was at the World Intellectual Property Organization, and I was their representative to those negotiations. It, it, it was at a at a time, even then, where it was very difficult to come to any uh, set conclusions between countries at different levels of development as to whether intellectual property is good or bad and and how it could be managed or not. And so, you know, those instruments, including the CBD, you know, basically had something in them for everyone, regardless of what your view was of, of intellectual property, which then has resulted in uh, decades of debate about what it actually uh, means um, in practice. And... Um, You know, we've also, you know, certainly seen that in uh, climate change. There's been, you know, right from the beginning of the negotiations arising out of the UNFCCC, there were discussions about, um, you know, the fundamentals of intellectual property and whether it's good or bad. Um, And we've seen that as well in the global health arena. Uh, Just like you were pointing out in your book, um, the proposals from uh, Ecuador, I think it was back in 2013, uh, to really, uh, you know, eliminate the possibility of patent protection, patentable subject matter for clean tech, which as you point out would be a problem to define exactly what that would mean, what would be excluded. Uh, but then other things having to do with transferring of technology that's protected by uh, trade secrets and to a certain extent, uh, data protection and so on, you know, uh, would, would further complicate, you know, the, the effectiveness of, of, you know, removing that subject matter from patent protection. And similarly, we're seeing you know, today, I mean, those of you that follow the discussions that are ongoing in the World Trade Organization, um, there was intended to be a, a, um, uh, a ministerial meeting last week that I was to attend and represent CEPI in those discussions. And um, there were basically two, two categories of matters that were under discussion there. One of them was intellectual property, and it's the, um, the proposal... Um, to waive intellectual property protection during uh, the term of the pandemic, um, and again, you know, the, the devil and there's, there's it's pretty devilish, but the devil is in the details of defining what is a pandemic, when it starts and when it ends. Um, you know, if you, you know, stand up a factory to ma- manufacture a vaccine during the pandemic, will you continue to be able to use it? You know, without being uh, without fearing a patent infringement action and so on. Once the pandemic is over. Um, and so there's those kinds of questions that um, uh, were being discussed and I think will continue to be discussed because that ministerial is likely to take place in March and, and those, those issues will arise again. But there's another category of issues you know, that have been very interesting as well that I think as well um, are relevant in the discussions around clean tech and establishment of, of R&D capacity, of manufacturing and utilization capacity. Uh, in the same way that it affects um, global public health in terms of transferring technology for the manufacturing of pharmaceutical products or vaccines. And that is, you know, the international trade issues of, uh, that, that, that can offer, uh, that, that provide um, uh, barriers. So tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers to trade. And um, some of the issues that, that we've seen, you know, have to do with uh, really a lack of transparency in terms of uh, trade flows involving uh, the components of technology pertaining to vaccine manufacture, for example, uh, tariffs on you know vaccines or tariffs on the components that go into their manufacture or the equipment that's used uh, to manufacture, um, and and other you know such such barriers, and you know I, I think it's I'm, I'm raising it here because I think it's equally important or maybe not equally but certainly important in clean tech that if you are going to transfer uh, technology uh, to another country. You're going to enable R&D in a certain sector or you're going to enable manufacture of of a given machine or device um, that um, along with that not only comes the transfer of the technology and which you you talk about, Joy, in your book in terms of what that means in in terms of actually having training in the technology by the local recipients of the technology and how they're going to utilize it. But you also have to think of, you know, what happens once, whatever the facility is uh, that is established, you know, through that tech transfer. How is it that they're going to get replacement parts? How is it they're going to get, you know, specialized, you know, inputs or devices that would be necessary to, you know, carry forward research and development as well as, you know, the manufacture of those devices. So I think, um, you know, there's one, one has to think through sort of these more, um, you know, integrated supply chains, you know, that, um, that necessarily have to arise in order to support uh, the the long-term stability and and, um, really existence, I think, of of some of the the technology transfer that's contemplated. Um, You know, I think think you're right that, um, you know, building domestic clean tech innovation uh, is important again. And I think you alluded to this in the talk and in the book is that, you know, how one goes about doing that would vary depending upon the capability and capacity of the country or the companies in a country to receive uh, that technology um, and you know i think as you say one has to leverage international aid uh, as you know we have seen in the the pharmaceutical sector in order to um, you know to provide the necessary funding to establish the, the new capabilities and capacities that are desired um, and then uh, uh, global uh, collaboration, you know, is necessary, and the global collaboration would be would be built on you know these principles that you talked about in terms of, of mutual respect of of what each side is contributing, what what they're they're getting out of it, uh, intellectual property being part of that as well. Um, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, I, I think your recognition that in the clean tech sector, there's more investment by industry. Uh, then government is an important one. And it's the same in the pharmaceutical sector um, as well. Um, Maybe turning just a little bit further towards some of the specifics about what what, we at CEPI are engaged in, and I would say it it involves this undertaking called COVAX, which is an undertaking that includes CEPI, uh, GAVI, the, the Global Vaccine Initiative, as well as the World Health Organization, UNICEF and PAHO in the Americas and the Caribbean. Um, that um, as we were, you know, standing up that, that that undertaking, you know, there was a recognition that there needed to be um, continued investment in research and development. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen the reasons for it since mm-hmm. um, the problem has changed. Uh, the problem has changed in the sense that, you know, we have new variants uh, that are of concern that may lead to the need to develop um, vaccines specifically against those those variants. Um, And then um, there's a a need as well for the countries where the technology is going to be transferred to take certain steps as well. Um, I would say it's more true probably in the pharmaceutical sector that there's a significant level. The the pharmaceutical sector is a highly regulated industry and um, it's one that has regulation Uh, at the global level, but more at the local or regional level where there are different bodies, public health ministries, um, you know, that are charged with ensuring that the facilities that are used to make uh, vaccines and drugs meet certain uh, necessary requirements to ensure the safety and efficacy of those drugs and vaccines. And that has to be done on an ongoing basis, you know, where you ensure that the local factories that are making vaccines are doing so in accordance with um, good manufacturing uh, practices, which is a fairly well-established um, standard, and so that, uh, as you're describing for you know the uh, clean tech industry, does require um, a fair amount of investment um, at the local level. And you know just one sort of example, uh, and I, I don't think this is a tangent. It's more of an example of what I've been illustrating. But that is that um, you know we we've done a lot of work um, uh, with in, in Africa. And specifically, we have a memorandum of understanding with the African Union and the Africa CDC and a memorandum of understanding with the International Finance Corporation. And you know the, the purpose of, of those and, and other arrangements that we're entering into is, in the case of Africa, is to move that continent from manufacturing 1% of the vaccines that they use on an annual basis to, over the next decade, 60%. Um, know so we are looking at a significant movement in terms of manufacturing capability and capacity for vaccines that will require you know what you've laid out in your book joy it's going to require um, you know public sector investment um, including locally within Africa but then also from high-income countries it's going to require uh, a willingness and ability to transfer the technology uh, for those vaccines uh, to to those countries it's going to require those countries um, if they, they want to be successful in attracting those technologies and not scare away the companies that have it and would transfer it, they, they need to establish the right capabilities and capacities to ensure the safety and efficacy of the products um, to, you know, ensure an appropriate level of, of intellectual property protection. Now, you know, I, I talk about intellectual property in this context, and I think in very much the same way that, that you have, Joy, in that, um, you know, it's um, – it's, uh, uh, part of uh, part of what we we all take into consideration if we are investing in new research and development. And as you say in your book, the pharmaceutical sector, the biotech sector are, you know, passionately focused uh, about getting you know protection for their intellectual property, uh, patents in particular, but other forms of IP as well. Um, and you, you know, we're we're also and again, I'm not sure, so sure how much this is applicable to clean tech but one of the reasons why um, you know it's important to take that into consideration in the tech transfer discussions is that um, a lot of the companies that are taking up technologies that are developed um, with government funding either to them directly or through universities doing basic research and so forth is that they then you know make further investments to develop the technology and in the space that I'm working in vaccines you know a lot of times you know that technology is a basic platform technology that can be used to manufacture um, a number of different interventions. You know that could be against infectious diseases um, like um, SARS-CoV-2, um, or it could be against um, non-infectious conditions like, you know, for oncology applications or cancer. Um, and so, you know, when when they're looking at opportunities to transfer technology, you know, they're looking at uh, what they want to enable to be done with their technology and to have it uh, made accessible and available for particular purposes that are important for that country to which it's being transferred, but maybe not for everything and maybe not for everything on a global basis. And so having intellectual property as a way to kind of define the rules of the road you know, with respect to the tech transfer and its utilization um, is important. And yes, that can be done through, through contract, but I think intellectual property is developed Sort of an efficient way to go about uh, drawing those lines and making those divisions over quite a number of years. Um, I think, you know, maybe the, the, the last thing that I would say um, at this point, you know, I, I think that it, it's really um, an interesting moment in time. I mean, look at um, a lot of the discussions that are taking place around IP and patents in the clean tech context and, and, at, and, and uh, countries that are advocating for eliminating patent protection just the same way that it's happening um, in the WTO. Well, at the same time, you know, I see certainly in the, the area that I work in, in terms of global health is that there's just a lot more, um, a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot of focus on uh, what can be done in order to, in a sense, make it real. You know, that there there is a need. Uh, there's no doubt that there's a need. I mean, one of the things that has been a major uh, and it's, it's the same, same kind of uh, angst, you know, that you see in the climate change discussions about those countries that are most affected by it, you know, like the island nations in the Pacific are the ones that are most angry and the ones that are most strongly advocating for anything that could possibly be done in order to rescue them. Um, and that includes the transfer of technology to uh, adapt in particular, but also to mitigate. Um, and the same is true in, in global health. You know, you see the result of what's happened at the global level, and I can go into detailed discussions as to why things have turned out this way. But there's enormous inequity in terms of the vaccines that have gone to low and middle-income countries versus those that have gone to high-income countries, and it's it is it is that inequity that I think has been I don't know the the straw that broke the camel's back, or certainly a strong motivator for regions like Africa to stand up and say no more. We you know we don't we don't want to. Um, uh, uh, to have to have to uh, have to uh, bet our survival on crumbs from the table um you know we we not we need you know to be able to manufacture what what our people need in order to protect them whether it be vaccines and drugs and so forth and so there is a, a coherent and concerted focus uh, to to get them to that point and and it's something that is you know now recognized by high-income countries as well so it's not as if they are standing in the way i don't think that they you know say that um, eliminating or waiving the TRIPS agreement for a period of time is going to be uh, an effective you know, way forward here. But certainly, you know, being willing to uh, put more money into it, willing to you know work with uh, the universities and companies that they funded to uh, encourage um, or maybe more uh, the movement of technology to satisfy the needs of low and middle income, income countries, low and middle income countries, and come up to you know that level of development within that technology so they can you know take care of their own local problems and then in that sense too um, as we are transferring this technology for manufacturing so too technologies will be transferred for research and development I mean there's there are a number of pathogens against which we are developing um, vaccines that don't appear outside of low middle income countries things like uh, Rift Valley fever and Lhasa, uh, Nipah virus uh, emerged in Malaysia 20 years ago. Um, Chikungunya. Uh, we did some work on finishing, you know, a couple of vaccines in terms of clinical trials uh, against uh, Ebola, um, and you know that that then signals to say that well, you know, they they should be themselves enabled to to you know to take on to do a lot of the work that's necessary to um, manufacture. Uh, to um, you know, develop some of the um, some of the, the the reagents or tests that are used to determine the quality of vaccines, uh, to do work locally to sequence um, uh, the genome of, of pathogens that have been identified locally, so take on more of the work locally to you know move uh, the global process forward in terms of addressing some of these emerging diseases, and then you know be in a position. You know, at some point, you know, so that they can put all of this together and themselves do the research and development to develop, you know, vaccines, drugs, or other interventions against diseases that are arising locally, which the rest of the world, you know, may not have a significant interest in. Um, so again, I applaud, I applaud you, Joy, in the book, you know, that you've done, and as you can tell, it really has resonated with me, uh, not just because of what I did some years ago in connection with the UNFCCC, but then, you know, also what I've seen since then. You know, in global public health, and some of the some of the parallels, which I think um, you know, uh, you know, present some opportunities for um, for uh, some uh, cross fertilization uh, in addressing some of these issues. And I'd be really delighted to to work with you in that effort. So thank you.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Richard. Uh, it is uh, time now to hear from Professor Stephen Minas from uh, one of Joyce's, uh, Joyce Joyce's colleagues at at PKU. Shenzhen or, or PKU STL as, as they call it, uh, Shenzhen Transnational Law School. Uh, Professor Minas, it's all yours.
0: Thanks very much, uh, Rob. And uh, from my side also, congratulations again, Joy. This is a major contribution uh, to the debate. I think it shows what's possible when somebody who isn't uh, burdened by close involvement in the decades of climate uh, negotiations takes a fresh look at this space. So it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful work, wonderful book uh, that will be very helpful. Uh, just to uh, respond uh, to something Dick raised about adaptation mitigation, uh, I- indeed my, my view is also that the least developed countries overwhelmingly have an adaptation priority for technology, uh, but mitigation of course is very important. Uh, to enable them to leapfrog and to not have to uh, build the polluting infrastructure that we're in the process of dismantling so that's it's it's inevitably mitigation and adaptation uh, i think for all countries although different circumstances of course um so very very briefly the book what what do i see as its key uh contributions i think a lot of this has already been mentioned but i think the focus on the reality, the importance, the centrality I would say of the private sector in climate technology, clean technology transfer uh, is is absolutely uh, critical. And in this case, it's it's empirically grounded. So I think that 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 is data and those are conclusions that that cannot be ignored. Uh, The reality that when we also talk about developing countries, we're in fact describing such a broad diversity of countries that one can question if the term has, uh, has lost some of its meaning. Uh, so least developed countries, uh, small island developing states, uh, some extremely wealthy countries actually, including fossil fuel exporters, uh, and then the major emerging economies. Um, practically, what do they have in common? Uh, I think that this, this sort of focus on the reality of national circumstances is very helpful. Uh, although we know that there is also the reality of diplomacy which which we have to contend with at the same time Uh, also the focus on the internal capacity of countries and the importance the necessity of capacity building in many cases to to build enabling environments for technology transfer to occur successfully including uh, via the private sector And in the case of the least developed countries, the very important role of international multilateral assistance for this to occur. Uh, Again, this this is very important, and I'll have something to say about that. Just to take the first of those points that I mentioned, uh, the role of the private sector. Now, I've been invited uh, by Joy to say a bit about the, the COP26 negotiations. And it may surprise you, it may not surprise you that it can actually be a challenge uh, to get any kind of acknowledgement of the role of the private sector into the decisions of the Conference of Parties. Uh, There is a view that technology transfer is an entirely public undertaking, uh, entirely on the basis of the obligations, the very important obligations of developed countries. I think we can read a book like this We can learn about the real world. We also need to bring some of this reality into our intergovernmental interactions. And there are productive discussions, but there is also a very long way to go in that respect. Uh, On the question of helping the least developed countries to access technology transfer, this has been an important focus of the work under the Paris Agreement, of course, also the the Climate Convention. Uh, But the Paris Agreement is a significant step forward in that it requires cooperation on all stages of the technology cycle. So including RD&D, including innovation at every stage of the technology cycle. Uh, So this is work which has been taken up since 2015. Uh, by the technology bodies of the Paris Agreement, but also by the financial bodies, uh, and also by countries bilaterally, plurilaterally. And as I've said, that the, the necessity of public assistance is rightly and, and necessarily focused on LDC's small island developing states. I'm happy to say more uh, about that. But that's, that's very consistent with, with what you've found in this book. To turn to the question of intellectual property rights, IPRs, and how how they interact with the regime, but more importantly, uh, what is their role in the practicality of technology transfer? This book is also a very valuable contribution, putting this into context. And the reality that IPRs, or I should say the abrogation, or the suspension of IPRs, mechanisms like that that have been proposed from time to time, uh, are clearly not the main game, are clearly not the mechanism that is necessary or even demanded for technology transfer. And this is echoed in in the recent work of the UN Climate Secretariat and also the the Technology Executive Committee. Uh, So for example, the latest synthesis report of the technology needs of developing countries from 2020, uh, looked at the major barriers to technology transfer for mitigation, Uh, economic and financial, of course, top the list, technical barriers, and also policy, legal, and regulatory barriers. But if you zoom in on the policy, legal, and regulatory barriers, you don't find IPRs there. You find insufficient legal and regulatory frameworks, which can include appropriate IPR laws, uh, insufficient enforcement, uh, policy changing too often and haphazardly of course. Uh, But the empirical experience being reported from countries uh, doesn't bear out the idea that we need to do something radical on IPRs to have effective technology transfer. And it's the same in terms of what climate technology national focal points are reporting and members of bodies such as the tech and the climate technology center and network. Uh, just a few months ago, the tech released a new paper on building the endogenous capacities of countries for climate technology. And this was based on surveys of national focal points and other actors. Uh, and what it found was that when it comes to in country skills and knowledge, IPR issues uh, were ranked just 18 out of 24 on a list of issues. There is a need to deal with IPR questions, but it is not central to the needs that countries are reporting. Uh, And I think that if we look at the history of the negotiations and the very strong proposals in the past to have some kind of IPR uh, suspension or modification mechanism, Uh, which were finally unsuccessful at Paris 2015 for lack of consensus and have not really been part of the process since. Uh, I think we have to say that the lack of consensus means that on the one hand, IPR is not dealt with in a multilateral way, in a normative way under the Paris Agreement, Uh, but parties have been able to park this issue to put it aside and to concentrate on practical cooperation, practical uh, capacity building, technical assistance, financial support. Uh, so that's, that's where uh, the, the IPR question is at a multilateral level. Now, of course, IPR has a very important role to play, as, as Joyce writes in the book, uh, but that is really located at the domestic level in terms of having the appropriate rules in place and having the appropriate agreements in place to facilitate international technology transfer, whether that's coming from the public sector, the private sector, or some kind of multi-stakeholder approach. And and that's what we found in another recent uh, publication of the tech on international collaborative RD&D, particularly in terms of paying attention to what kind of arrangements on IPR, amongst others, facilitate private sector involvement. So so all this is is part of the mix, uh, but it's very different to the old uh, new international economic order agenda and the various discussions that have taken place in environmental treaties uh, since then. Uh, So let me just... Uh, conclude then in terms of COP26, which I've been invited to mention, and what is actually happening in a practical sense in this space. As as has already been alluded to, there were very difficult discussions on the question of climate finance at COP26. Uh, the collective failure to mobilize $100 billion annually by 2020 uh, was... Uh, The context for these discussions, it was acknowledged by the COP. Uh, I have to say that not every developed uh, party contributed to this failure in the same way, but nevertheless, here we are uh, collectively. Uh, So the conference decided uh, to make up that shortfall as soon as possible uh, to launch a new negotiation for a quantified 2025, post 2025 financial assistance target. It asked, uh, developed countries to double their adaptation finance by 2025. And again, one of the very important distinctions between adaptation and mitigation is that the public sector has a much bigger role to play in adaptation because many of these technologies uh, do not earn a commercial return, uh, very different to a lot of mature uh, mitigation technologies. Uh, so that's 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 the broad state of play on finance uh, coming out of COP26. And in terms of technology, uh, we see the existing organizations under the Convention and the Paris Agreement uh, continuing to function. We extended the role of the Climate Technology Center and Network for another five years, providing um, technical assistance to developing countries. And we have continued to deepen the cooperation of this technical assistance body with the financial institutions. Uh, So the Green Climate Fund, uh, for example, uh, is is integrated with many of the CTCN projects. The GCF is also developing uh, a climate innovation facility to support uh, technology incubators and accelerators, which is expected to go before the GCF board at a a coming meeting quite soon. Uh, The Adaptation Fund, Uh, which was significantly boosted in Glasgow with an additional 350 million dollars of new contributions uh, has developed its own climate innovation accelerator program which the the ctcn is also uh, one of the implementing bodies for Uh, so at the professional technical level a lot of work is happening uh, within the UN system and beyond it Uh, clearly though this is at the level of millions and perhaps billions not at the level of of trillions that we need uh, to transition including into clean technology so the broader work uh, to implement the article 2 goal of the paris agreement to make all financial flows consistent with mitigation and adaptation inevitably involves private sector finance business Uh, and financial regulators, and that work is also underway with important announcements at COP26, as well as legislative developments such as the European Union taxonomy. So a lot of this work is taking place. It's not fast enough, and we now have in the mix as well uh, new rules for carbon markets finally agreed in Glasgow, uh, which also uh, contemplate uh, technology, and indeed uh, the role of technology transfer. So we have the experience of the clean development mechanism. Uh, We're trying to improve upon that in various ways. Uh, Happy to discuss that further, but I think just that brief snapshot of what Glasgow delivered regarding uh, technology. As I say, IPRs are just not on the agenda anymore. Uh, Parties have recognized that there is no possibility of consensus. So they're quite practically working on other matters. I think it's very interesting to hear about the developments in international public health governance and to watch that space and see what we can learn from that as well. Uh, so, that's also uh, of interest, although there isn't a formal connection between the processes. Uh, but with that, let me wrap up um, again with congratulations and I look forward uh, to the rest of the discussion. Thank you.
1: Okay, that is a very helpful and very rich set of comments from our two commentators. So, I hope. Some of uh, you who are looking in, audience members, uh, were stimulated to ask yourself a question or uh, are in the process of generating one. So think about that. I I had a couple of questions myself so I can get the discussion started. We've talked about, uh, Joy, a lot of the topics that you and I thought might come up. And uh, rather than go and follow up on things that people have covered really well, um, let me try a stab at something a little different, which is we we see there's a certain amount of uh, uh, I guess you might say superpower competition in the air these days. To the extent that we might use climate change technology as a you know as a as a soft power lever or as a way to uh, you know show the good faith of you know our international relations or however you want to describe it, there is a possibility of you know, um, some competition between mainland China and the U.S. or U.S. and allies in terms of, you know, being seen as the the, the country most interested and most helpful in developing capacity for dealing with climate change. There's two schools of thought on that, I would think, right? One, to have to duplicate all these technologies across a rivalry would be very inefficient. And I think in the spirit of your book, um, you might address that, but the other side of it is sometimes rivalry spurs people to greater effort, and and rivalry here might might spur these these two different uh, you know power blocks to try harder, um, you know, to earn that title of most climate conscious superpower. What do you think about that? Do you have a view on that, the superpower competition angle?
2: Well, wow, that's a very interesting question, Rob. Actually, when you would. Announcing this question, I was thinking what I was covering in the book, okay. Uh, In the book, I spent um, probably, you know, a few pages discussing about the collaboration between U.S. and China on clean tech development. That cooperation has been going on for about 15 years at least. The U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, the CERC, has produced, uh, you know, hundreds of innovations and uh, um, probably, you know, dozens of uh, significant clean tech inventions. Okay. Uh, So I I actually I was rather proud to present that given the rivalry, rivalry context that uh, we are currently in between these two countries, okay. China and the US have been um, good in terms of clean tech development collaboration. However, um to answer your question, my perception, okay, is that China has been rather aggressive in terms of its investment in clean tech development, uh, in sustainable technology development. China made uh sustainable development as one of its national strategies. In the past uh, few years, uh, it has promoted itself into being one of the top publishers, producers of published scientific research papers in 15 sustainable technology uh, fields. So my perception is uh, China is acting firmly and aggressively in terms of clean tech investment, sustainable technology uh, development investment. As far as US, um, I can know that US probably, unfortunately at this stage uh, needs to improve its investments, its attention to uh, climate technology development in terms of research and commercialization. So that's my perception of the reality. I would say that um, it seems US, at least from my uh, knowledge, is that has not regarded climate technology, clean tech in general, as a strategic industry, one of the strategic industries that need to be protected against the rivalry with China. So my hope, you you know, Dick, uh, Stephen, or the audience can update me on that. So my if my perception is correct, I do think clean tech development, sustainable technology development, is one of the areas where the two countries can further their connectedness and maybe uh, you know, improve the relationship.
1: That's a very hopeful view, and maybe you know, better for the planet if we can, um, rather than waste money in competition, get together, keep our heads together, and work together. Um, second question is: uh, I think both Stephen and Richard may have views on this. One of the one of the things that the more recent generation of uh, economic development thinking and practice has has made common is to think about ways to deal with fragile states or sometimes states that aren't functioning very well. You know, I think um, the Gates Foundation was really very effective in developing networks and relationships that in a sense um, uh, went beyond the government level. So you develop direct relationships with clinics and physicians and local institutions so that you can deliver services and know-how more directly. Um, there are other, you know, sort of charity and assistance approaches that try to work around the, the downsides of fragile states. I think of stuff like the Heifer Project, which gives away animals and, and actual direct assistance rather than money, which can be diverted and, and siphoned off. So the question I have is, have you thought about that, you know, delivery strategies that, that are tailored to work with Um, you know, states that are still in development and sometimes not functioning very well?
3: I can go first on that, maybe, um, Robin. And uh, yes, I mean, we have at CEPI, and and certainly, you know, as I said, I was at the Gates Foundation for a number of years prior to CEPI. So, you know, I've been involved in some of those discussions. I think that, um, you know, concern about uh, fragile states from the perspective of, of organizations like CEPI and the Gates Foundation that are trying to Build up local capacity and capabilities fall into a couple of categories. Uh, one has to do, and the best example perhaps is the polio eradication program, um, with um, you know a large number of actors involved in that, including the Gates Foundation. But there have been you know significant concerns that have really you know arisen even more strongly recently about some of the areas in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, the tribal areas where. Um, you know, you have many instances where um, vaccination teams have been assassinated, um, you know, which obviously means that you can't go forward, you can't continue. Um, and as you say, you know, that, that gave rise to outreach to um, some uh, non-traditional players, um, often to uh, imams um, or, you know, other religious leaders. Uh, to To get their cooperation, to you know, basically indicate that what was being done was good and should be allowed to go forward, um, and so so that's that's done. And in the in the vaccine space, I mean, what we've seen with COVID nineteen, probably the area that it comes out, you know, most is the um, uh, you know the various uh, players and the distribution of vaccines that are in the humanitarian sector. Like you know, we work a lot with Médecins Sans Frontières, and and they. You know, provide um, uh, health services in a lot of you know very uh, marginal areas in terms of safety and and uh, government stability, and you know there's a separate um, stockpile of vaccines, a humanitarian stockpile that they can draw down on you know for that purpose. Um, and then there has, of course, you know, been special efforts play or or made you know to address um, the various. Uh, individuals and communities and groups within those countries that can help or hinder and you know try and you know smooth things as as much as possible but even then sometimes it's not possible Um, you know you have vaccine hesitancy in many of those regions as a consequence of you know the views that have been put forward by religious leaders Um, and we have that in the United States as well quite frankly so um but um trying to Address the issues that are seen at the root is something that we do try to do.
0: We in the in the UN climate process try to take a multi-stakeholder approach so that we're not just uh, dependent on national government. Uh, so the Climate Technology Center Network uh, relies on hundreds of network members who are coming from private sector, research, civil society to, to deliver technical assistance. Uh, there are increasingly strong norms of participation by local communities, affected communities, uh, local civil society, uh, not just in the CDCN, but across the UN climate system, GCF, uh, including this new carbon trading uh, body, which is being set up. I think that that has an impact, but in in an area which is so dependent on national policy like climate change and energy, there are limits to what you can do with with. Challenge states and uh, just one example in in the western balkans uh, the state of bosnia and herzegovina uh, confronts massive challenges of implementing energy reforms uh, simply because of the structure of that state uh, which is for historical reasons Uh, so there are states with particular challenges and it is um, it is a challenge sometimes uh, delivering progress in that in that context.
1: Um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, Joy. In addition, I did want to mention if people have questions. We're getting down near the end of our scheduled time, so I would say um, stand and deliver. Time, time to put your questions up.
2: So I just have a comment following up to what Stephen said. Okay, I I recently uh, had had the privilege being privilege of being invited to a joint WTO Wipo function they have you know listened to what they were doing for two weeks and I got the sense that um, so what I learned is that both WIPO and the WTO um, are strengthening their capacity building efforts especially you know to developing countries the least developed countries that was one reason I was participating uh, in that joint function however um, through their work, uh, their you know enhanced efforts. Uh, and with my understanding of what's going on at UN and what's going on at the UN uh, sustainable development you know agenda 2030 initiatives uh, all, and also their capacity building efforts about the dev- you know delivering enhancing capacity at the local jurisdictions. I have had the concern is that a lot of you know, some of the efforts, if these agencies are coordinating well okay UN WTO, WIPO, WHO, all the multiple multilateral agencies can coordinate in the capacity building effort at the local jurisdictions. Uh, then um, maybe there's less duplication. In my impression UNCCC has been doing a great job in terms of capacity building, you know, providing technical assistance and by linking its financial mechanism with the technical mechanisms, uh, it actually, you know, strengthens the capacity building efforts. And if WTO, WIPO, WHO, uh, if they have not done so, uh, they just you know, started enhancing their efforts. Maybe there's some coordination among these jur- uh, among these agencies. You know, for example, learning from what UNCCC has been doing uh, or leverage what it has been doing over there, expanding the scope of some of the successful mechanisms, uh, efforts, then the resource is better used rather than just, you know, being duplicated, uh, in wasted in duplicative effort. So that's just my quick observation uh, recently.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Josh, I see you, you turn your camera on. Does that mean you're ready to ask a question or are you just uh, wanting to be seen and say hello? Yeah.
4: Hey, Rob. Uh-huh. Um, first, congratulations, Joy. Um, great that this is finally out. My question is that we're starting to see loss and damage scale up exponentially. And I guess my question is is given the financing has been inadequate to date already, and given that the technology transfer isn't really gonna address the loss and damage, what do you think can be done to actually try to you know deal with the problems for the trading system and what it means for technology transfer, when entire countries will be underwater, um, when tens of millions of people will be in coastal uh, plains, when the food problems from drought and flooding uh, create more migration issues. I mean these are real. These are so much bigger than the current levels of technology transfer that's even contemplated to be geared up to?
2: That's a huge question here. Uh, yeah, so the research I do on tech transfer seriously hasn't reached to this uh, to this consideration.
1: I mean, the, the logical connection would be, unfortunately, the, the worse the problems get, the more, the more immediate the threats, the bigger the crisis. The more impetus there'll be to address the issues Joy's talking about, but in the in the intermediate term, we're going to be working on parallel tracks. We're going to be trying to help people, you know, literally bail out or just just keep their heads above water, you know, figuratively, while we're trying to encourage the stimulation of, of this uh, R and D infrastructure and the absorptive capacity. So I, I think they're connected in the sense that you know I think it, it's gonna it's gonna push the crises you're talking about are very real. They're going to push Joy's issues to the forefront. and But but this two-track approach seems to be, I mean, that's just that's the only thing we can do, really.
4: Maybe another way to ask the question is just to say, is there a reason to think that this is going to lead toward more collaboration or toward more uh, violent competition?
3: Well, potentially both. I mean, you know, it's <clears throat> clearly... And one, one way to think about it is, you know, what's been discussed over a number of years is the issue of uh, 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 climate change refugees. Um, and, and, you know, th- so that, that is a very, you know, clear and tangible result of uh, the failures with respect to um, uh, adaptation as well as um, mitigation where you have people that just can no longer live either because the land no longer produces the food they need or it's underwater or both. Um, And so that's going to give rise to, you know, some challenges and and that will lead to very likely some some violent uh, challenges in in dealing with it. Um, I mean, we've seen that already. You know, a lot of the migration coming from Central America is is, you know, has climate change as at least part of the origin. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's likely to to continue. But I agree with Rob is that, you know, those those issues are real. And, you know, we are going to have to deal with them, we're going to face them and deal with them, but we're also in parallel, taking steps to, you know, enable all countries of the world to take steps to protect themselves and keep, you know, their, their people, their territory, um, uh, you know, together and whole.
1: Okay, I, I often consider it incumbent on the moderator, or organizer or whatever I'm supposed to be, to try to keep the train running more or less on time and everybody we have a fantastic audience because sometimes at six thirty, boom, you lose half your audience. But this is a very polite group, or everybody's uh, in the middle of dinner and uh, just just uh, trailing mm-hmm. along. But whatever the case, I think it's time to to roll this up so that you can trust our our time estimates in the future, and so our future, you know, book book club meetings uh, keep to the same schedule. So I want to uh, just reiterate congratulations joy a book is a uh, um, it's a great accomplishment and this one in particular is just very important I'm really glad that we were able to participate thanks a lot to the commentators great stuff I mean I took a lot of notes with what you what you both said and thank you for the question Josh and uh, I guess we'll just uh, I should thank the BCLT staff because as usual we're great let me just wrap it up and, and say, uh, have a good evening, everybody. And hopefully we get to reconvene again with another interesting book down the line. So thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you, everybody.